Dr. Carmen Poligafito, welcome to Retina Synthesis. We have Dr. Lila Bezovich with us today. She's an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Duke Eye Center and an expert on both adult and pediatric ophthalmology, uh, retina, retina wise. And we're going to talk today about lessons learned in retinal gene therapy. So, Layla, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Carmen. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, what's your what's been your experience with retinal gene therapy so far? Yeah, no, I think in general it's a very exciting field. Um, I think there's much to be offered. Clearly, we're just getting just hitting the tip of it and getting sort of warmed up with it. Um, but I think it's very interesting. I, I think out of all of it, the, in terms of gene therapy, I think transvitreal or subretinal delivery approach. Um, it seems to be the most optimal in terms of uh, what it's delivering um, promises, but in terms of the side effects as well. Um, so um, I think that that is seems to be the most promising so far. Mm -hmm. um, so what what uh, you gave a very nice talk uh, recently at the clinical uh, therapy trial clinical trials summit talked about lessons learned in retinal gene therapy. What would, what, what are the main lessons that you've learned? Yeah, no, I think in general, um, um, just like when we are approaching any type of surgery, um, we want to kind of dig into the details of it. And I think for gene therapy, some pre-planning needs to be done. Um, I think there's vast difference between adult and pediatric eyes, but not just between that, there's a vast difference between diseases at stake. Um, so I think for somebody who is getting gene therapy for, for um, AMD, um, I think the approach in that surgery will be a little bit of a different mindset versus somebody who is a pediatric eye with inherited retinal um, disease. I think those eyes will have a little bit more adhe adhesions in terms of RP and uh, retina, and that blood may be a little harder to initiate for sure and propagate. And I think I'd focus a little bit more uh, talking about um, gene therapy for age-related macular degeneration, kind of um, emphasis on that. And I think when we um, when we approach um, an eye, we want to think about first the target area. Uh, we want to analyze uh, our images preoperatively and understand what are the goals for that clinical trials, where exactly the drug does need to be delivered, and where we want to initiate that blood. And I personally like to print out a fundus image and literally label on it, like what is my first location uh, for the um, injection, what would be my second, third, and such um, in case needed. I think over time for um, Regenix BioStudy, there has been a shift to initiating blebs inferiorly. Infranasal, I think, is the uh, optimal location because we have seen some RP type of changes um, uh, secondary to who knows, maybe technique itself, delivery technique, or um, the virus self transfection of the virus. Um, and we want to limit those, um, those to um, access to the macula. So I think. First, foremost is target area, pre-planning, where you exactly want to start. I think next one um, in terms of operation itself is making sure you are very thorough in your vitreous removal. And for, I think, age-related macular that might be a simple task of um, ensuring you've done a thorough vitrectomy and peripheral shaving. But in pediatric eye, that will definitely need a 
um, highlighted with a triessence and ensuring that we have a full PVD um, induction. And even after that, I would again restain and rehighlight the vitreous to make sure that all of the hyaloid surface has been eliminating. There's often low vitreous cases and residual hyaloid on surface of the retina that will very much limit your um, induction of a blood. It will plug your tip of your cannula um, and it will not allow you to to uh, propagate that or even initiate it. So I like to use the flex loop, um, nine and all loop to help me eliminate any of the residual, residual highlight by gently kind of scraping on the surface of the retina and, and eliminating that um, in the area where we're gonna be um, initiating the blebs. And after that, um, it's all about kind of focusing on initiating that bleb and um, the location you chose. I think for initiation itself, um, you want to make sure you've done the due diligence of decreasing intraocular pressure because we don't want that intraocular pressure resisting the pressure, the flow of gene therapy delivery, initiation of the blood. So I like to drop my intraocular pressure down to 10. Um, most of us now these days use IA vitrectomy machines that have uh, IOP feature included. IOP control feature. So I like to actually turn that off because I don't want that to be blasting or infusing additional fluid uh, to make up for the decrease in, in pressure. Um, and then after I've adjusted that, I like to kind of focus on the area where I'm going to inject. And um, with the cannula, we're going to gently touch the surface, see sort of a, a grayish pimple, um, grayish change. If it's more of a whitening change, then that may be, that's probably we're pressing a little too much with the cannula um, and then start the bleb. If we're hoping for this bleb to be in macular location to involve the fovea, we definitely want to initiate it in the macular within the arcades. If we are hoping for this bleb to be peripheral, like in Regenix bio studies, we're going to be initiated outside of the arcades. Um, and typically, um, the blood will propagate away from the arcades or away from the macula if you're starting more in the periphery. And then um, I think the injection flow, as we're learning with some of the kind of side effects we're seeing or some of the pigmentary changes we're seeing down the road, there, there is some speculation that that might be surgically related. So all of us are very much in tune to injection pressure. And I like to use the, um, the automated feature on our vitrectomy machine with a little med one connector where we can use the viscous fluid inject feature and med one connector to help us automatically do the pressure control. Um, so I like to lower my PSI down to 16 being the max. And I actually like to um, use more of a six to eight PSI range, or maybe even lower once we've started that bleb to help me slowly propagate that bleb and slowly inject and enlarge that. And once we're kind of reached, we're following very closely what's happening in the surrounding areas. If this is within the macula, I want to make sure that a fovea version is slowly happening. And that's where I feel like OCT helps me the most is following intra OCTs, helping me um, understand how the fovea itself is behaving. If there's too much of a version of fovea, I may stop at that point with a concern that there may be a macular hole formation down the road. Um, so um, so that, that is um, the step that's kind of crucial in understanding, in my opinion. Um, and if this is a peripheral blood, we're monitoring to make sure that we're, you know, we are delivering outside of arcades and we're staying there. And, um, and then we're tasked with following how much volume we're injected. And I think that's actually a 
very challenging task because we're, we're, you know, focusing on the area in front of us, focusing on that blab, and somebody else is holding potentially that syringe and reading out for us. Um, I had my system reading out out loud where exactly was started, and we continue to count down to the volume that needs to be injected. Um, and I think we are, while we aim to inject 300 microliters or whatever the volume is of that study, um, it, it, it is often a challenge to be, I think, an exact um, precise um, kind of method we aim for it, but we're finding out from some of the OCT studies um, that we have done that we're probably pretty imprecise in our measurements. Um, but, um, but that can be also not just um, volume delivery, it could be technique related um, as well. And then the last step is making sure you're not coming out of that retinotomy you created, you're staying in it till you are certain you deliver the volume. And um, if you're questioning it's better to then come out, kind of wait it out and start a blub elsewhere versus going the same blub and continue to enlarge the retinotomy because we all have seen reflux of fluid um, coming through that area and we definitely don't want to make it larger than it is. Um, so that's those are kind of the, in summary, steps of the things as I go through um, and things so in, in terms of thinking about how to generate this blub and where exactly to start it. What do you use for your <clears throat> micro injection? What device, what system? Mm -hmm. So I, I really like the extendable 41 gauge needle that is designed by Dork. Um, it is retractable. So I like to retract it. It is a 23 gauge instrument, um, but I do like um, that feature of being able to extend it. So I make sure I'm not um, in any way injuring the tip as I'm going in and out through the valve cannula system. Um, and once I extended it, I feel it's visible because it has a little a coloration to it, a little yellow tip, and I can kind of visually see where exactly it is. I wish it was an instrument that I can very much see on interop OCT because I think OCT helps us guide more so than any other surgery, helps us really with gene therapy delivery. Um, I think there's yet to be an instrument where it's uh, very much uh, OCT friendly. We can visualize the tip, but um, but we can to a certain degree um, uh, tell this. And then the last thing is I do like to bevel it. Um, some trials are regenics, but I would prefer not for us to bevel it, but I actually like to cut it uh, on those that do allow it because I think that, that, uh, that allows you to be a little bit asymmetric in your entrance and sub location and to initiate that blood a little easier. Uh, do you do an <clears throat> air fluid exchange at the end of the case or not? I do. I think it's um, it's important. Definitely, if I'm not doing fluid air exchange, I'm definitely doing fluid fluid exchange. As much as we think we haven't had any reflex, so we were very precise in reaching that subretinal location. There's definitely much much egress of fluid happening, um, and we we definitely don't want to um, we don't want that happening and and virus transfecting other areas um, besides the photoreceptors and RP. So how often would you do the air fluid exchange compared to the fluid fluid exchange? Um, at least two, three times. Sometimes I leave it under air because I want to make sure that if it's a, where we, if we have to target the macula, I want that air to help me kind of push the fluid even more posteriorly as we're doing it. So, but I sit in the fluid for a while and just take a couple of minutes, just exchanging fluid for fluid as well. Mm -hmm. What about post-operative management of these patients? What, what do you tell them? I mean, particularly the parents of the children. Yeah, I typically, in kids, I tend to, unless it's, I, unless I haven't reached the phobia, um, 
I'll leave them under air, a little bit of air to help push out. Um, but I tend to leave them under fluid more so because we can position them very well. And then I find that that air may be actually pushing the blood even more inferiorly and maybe mm -hmm. causing displacement if we have a very large volume that we had to deliver. Um, so I tend to, um, luckily they're pretty sedated right after surgery. So I have them laying on their back. I'm more in supine position for at least a couple hours. And that's for any type of um, um, delivery uh, to the macula. I want that fluid to kind of drape or, you know, settle as much as possible over the posterior pole. And then for the rest of it, I don't have any restrictions besides of no rubbing your eye, no striking strenuous activities to like potentially if, if I didn't use um, sutures, I don't want that eye to become hypotenuse in any way. What about the adults? Anything different with them? Um, not much more difference as well, because I tend to use minimal air um, at the end just to kind of help me, yes, exchange, but potentially close or seal sclerotomies off, um, but no additional restrictions for them either. What about intraoperative complications? What are the most frequent ones that are observed? Yeah, I think the, the kind of the dreaded one is um, you have to be very careful of target location and staying away from arteries um, and making sure that you don't have any intraop bleeding, specifically subretinal ble bleeding. I want, I one would definitely want to kind of stay away from that. I think there have been instances where one would potentially inject the product in, in sub-RP location. So there's like a little PED at the site. And I think OCT helps us know that we're in correct location as we start to initiate that bleb. Um, so I think that would be one, um, one of the kind of dreaded things that um, one would um, want to stay away. And then I think vitrectomy itself comes with the risk of during induction of PVD, you come at risk of having a retinal tear um, created during that abduction. Um, I think anytime you have any of the additional steps that you need to undertake, like, you know, sealing that off, it's not a dreaded, it's something that I think it happens, not, it happens for certain during vitrectomy surgery, it's given that risk is there, but you know, you want to just have minimal things happen during these procedures. Do you have an opinion about subcoroidal, uh, supercoroidal delivery of, uh, genes? Yeah. I think um, I, I think just um, recently in Retina Society, we've seen um, really exciting data um, so far out of Regenix Bio um, trial coming out. It looks like they've not had any inflammation. I think number one question with all of these is inflammation, right? What is it? Um, what is this gene therapy going to you know do in that particular area? I think with subretinal approach, we've seen that it's really immunoprivileged site, and then we're having minimal issues with inflammation. And I think that's why it continues to be, in my opinion, um, the approach to go. Um, intravitreal definitely has had issues, and I think the younger the eyes, the more inflammation is going to be. And I think that's why in diabetic trials, you're seeing that more so than others. Um, and then in supercoidal, I think I was excited to see that there's minimal issues with inflammation. So I think from that perspective, seems promising. I think the efficacy has to be teased out, but I definitely, um, I was happily um, surprised to see no inflammation issues. Do you have an opinion about which delivery system is going to be the dominant one in the future? I mean, that's looking forward a number of years. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I wish like, you know, I wish we, uh, it would be intra-office procedure. So while I'm very much pro subretinal delivery, um, I think surgery, surgery um, comes with the risks. Um, although 
doing that once and having a product that is, uh, you know, biofactory for the rest of the someone's life. I think it's a risk I'm willing to take for that patient versus expose them to continue injections in clinic. But if we can figure out an outpatient approach where we are doing intravitreal or supracortical injection, I think that would be the, the approach to take. And so far, supracortical looks very promising in terms of inflammation. I think efficacy, uh, I hope to see that there too. Well, thank you so much for this discussion. It was really terrific and lots of great points. And I know that our audience will enjoy listening to this. Thank you so much for your participation on retina synthesis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carmen. Have a great day.